to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with the beloved, my beloved news dude, Martin Lovable Willis. Aww. How's that? That is so much better than some of the other things People I've been are called. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, you told me about a listener beating up on you a bit, uh, <laughs> and so I wanted to... to let that listener know that uh, not everybody feels that way. In fact, most feel the opposite. That's true. That listener sucks, yeah. if you oh. ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and we know they're not listening. Well, that's what's funny. These people threaten not to listen anymore. But I think that's a true. lot of times they are listening still. Well, they want to listen to hear if we're going to talk about them one more time. Yeah. So you know, maybe... Yeah. Now they're not listening. But if they stop listening, they're going to miss a good show. So that's their own problem. That's true. Well, and you know why? Shows. My guest. I'm very excited about my guest. My guest tonight used to work uh, with me at Open Minds. And I've always been a fan of his work. Um, and so I'm really excited to catch up with him. And that guest is... Can you guess who it is? Can you guess um, the guest? It... Uh, can I do it? don't know if it would be Jason, but it would be the guy that does a video? No. Uh-oh. Michael Schratt. Oh, oh Michael Schratt. Yeah. yeah. So Michael's great. Oh. So yeah, so yeah. I'll be talking to him. Um, I haven't even recorded it. Usually by the time we talk, I've already recorded the interview, but not in this case. So I'll be talking to him in a few hours here. But uh, yeah, he's still here in the Phoenix area. And in fact, I want to work with him on a project because this is something... That I'm, I want to do, uh, um, I want to build a big model of the Phoenix Lights craft. That oh, he's uh, great at doing models, right? Yeah, he's the master. So yeah. uh, I'm working with him. At least he's providing the the sketches and everything. And uh, so I'm going to build something like that. Um, I'm also actually working on like a little guidebook, a little book. On uh, it's kind of a reference for the Phoenix Lights. Who saw what? When? Where? type of thing, what the skeptics say, uh, so people can kind of have all of the Phoenix Light stuff right there. And the reason I want to do that is because Phoenix Lights are such a big deal here in the Phoenix area, and if you're mm-hmm. not aware what that is, in March 13th, 1997, many people across the state saw a V-shaped object essentially fly over, um, and then later in the evening, they saw some lights over the hills. The later evening ones, I'm convinced, were flares. Some people don't believe right. that. Most do. Most researchers, you know, concede that those were flares. Uh, however, the other objects seen uh, over the state um, are 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 still unknown. And in fact, 
you know, I've been reading a lot of the skeptic stuff and um, to see if there's anything there. And there's a couple interesting things they have to say, but really they have no, in my opinion, compelling argument to explain, you know, what people said they saw. You know, I I spoke with uh, uh, Peter Davenport a, little, a few months ago, and he was telling me that when that happened, he got all these reports, which were uh, quite amazing right off the bat. And he was saying that one of the people that saw it was suggesting that it could be miles wide, plural, not just, yeah. you know, a lot of people said mm-hmm. it was like could be a mile wide, but it was said peak to peak. It could have been up to eight miles wide, which is uh yeah, I mean anything, you know, more than a hundred feet wide is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And for it to be, uh, you know, floating around, no sound, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah that that is uh, one of the, uh, in my book anyway. This is one of the top the top five sightings actually. Yeah. So I love we'll see mass sightings when it, when it comes out. You well, you could see if you uh, think that uh, if you still feel that way after reading all the skeptic stuff. Because I'm gonna, you know, I want to be fair to both sides. Mm-hmm. But at least thus far, you know, my opinion has not tipped to. It, it's certainly been explained personally. But we'll see. Um, I think I have a little bit more uh, research for, and I need to contact some of these skeptics. But so far, uh, I'm not convinced. But mm-hmm. um, I also wanted to give an update to my last guest, Chris Cogswell, who, who was awesome. He right. is no longer with MUFON, surprisingly, which is funny because yeah. a lot of the show was about how he's new, the new director of research with MUFON. But, um, of course, as, as some of the listeners know, there's been so much controversy with MUFON lately. Um, and, you know, that's that's what happened. Um I guess, Mm -hmm. essentially, I'll put it out there because he did explain it, and you can go on his social media and see this, but there was a a guy named John Ventry. I don't think I've had him on my show, but um, he uh, was a state director out in, like, Massachusetts or something like that. Uh, No, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah. And he has gone on these racist tirades. He's he's just... He gets on these tirades. He's gone after Mark D'Antonio, frequent guest um, that we've had. And um, I've even had to scold him. I I think I even had to kick him out of our forum. But uh, because he went on this racist tirade, uh, there was a big upheaval. And Mm -hmm. uh, MUFON was, like, defending him. And and it got real bad to where people were leaving and people were threatening to leave. And finally, they said, okay, we've let him go. Well, Chris found out that, in fact, he, he even though he doesn't have the title of state director, he's still running things uh, and involved That's with right. uh, the uh, running of MUFON. And he just said, I can't, you know, I can't. And so he left. And I don't blame him because any organization should be able to identify that as an issue. And really... Um, that uh, yeah, I mean it's it un- yeah. unacceptable behavior like that, and he and he never really apologized. He kind of doubled down and would defend oh. you know his, what he was saying, and it was so very very bad. So it's unfortunately I I can't blame Chris at all, and it's actually mm-hmm. eye opening even to me because I feel deceived that we were told you know Ventry was let go, he's no longer part of the organization, and here we find out right. which there have been rumors of the, to this effect. Uh, effect and um 
And I kind of thought, well, they're just rumors. I don't know if that's true. You know, I can't believe that. And Jan and the people at Buffon would would keep him around after all that. But apparently they have. Um, I don't know what the reasoning would be. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. I mean, he I personally don't feel he's one of his research is is not um, that great. Uh, He used to admit to that. But um, now he kind of doesn't. And then when um, people try to give him constructive criticism or, or he he just, you know, gets mean um, and takes it personal. And so um, it's yeah, I don't see any. I think they they would have been better off and they certainly would have had been able to keep some very important and helpful personnel if, if they would have just severed ties. But uh, the rumor is, and and this is just a rumor, but I don't know. I I can't see why uh, any other reason. Uh, but the rumor is that he's a, he's a big donor. Oh, that would be. Uh, I, I hate know to hear stuff like that. <laughs> I know, I know. Just because of that, yeah. You know, it's kind of like their five thousand dollar inner circle. Yeah, you know, for five thousand dollar donors, I, don't I really know. And then calling it the either. inner circle—that was a terrible mm-hmm. idea. Get, getting donations, of course, is very important. But you know, using the the phrase as the, they use in the news uh, all the time, the optics aren't good when you call it the right. inner circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, pretty. Oh, well, boy, that's too bad. Yep. Yeah. What can you do? But right. uh, I. I'm standing behind Chris 100%. I think he's awesome. Uh, I think probably many of you listeners agree after listening to him last week, if you weren't already aware, but a great thinker, an invaluable addition. He's certainly not do- dropping the UFO topic and UFO research. Um, so uh, he'll be around and we'll have him on the show again. And uh, so, yeah, there we are with that one. Right. Okay. And otherwise, in other news, that is you, my friend. That's your cue to take it away. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to talk about the loss of someone really great um, that kind of does what we do, uh, actually open the door uh, to a lot of us and uh, uh, that wants to explore unusual things. And that's Art Bell. Unfortunately, on uh, Friday the 13th last week, um, Art Bell passed away at only, uh, well, I say only, it seems young, uh, 72 years old. Uh, I personally, um, you know, I never, you know, had not heard of Art Bell uh, until about 2011, hmm. uh, which is not that long ago. But um, after listening to him, you know, I really, uh, really enjoyed going back into his archives of old shows. And I just love the way he was so natural with people and, and felt so comfortable in front of the mic. And uh, uh, so anyway, during the peak of the 1990s, um, he had approximately 500 North American radio stations um, airing right from his hometown, Pahrump, where he passed away. And uh, he actually became, you know, just this is on uh, Snopes, uh, Snopes, a fact checking site. Um, When he was uh, 13 years old, he set a Guinness World Record for broadcasting solo for 116 straight hours while working as a DJ, and uh, that was in uh, Okinawa, Japan. Mm. So he had he had quite an interesting life. I know he's a big ham radio guy and all that. Yeah. 
Um, he had a very young, he had a couple of young, very young children. One uh, son was only a few months old and a daughter, I think, um, is eight or nine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Young wife. He'll be missed by all. I'm sure Heather Wade is uh, um, devastated along with Keith Rowland, uh, who have been close to him for many years. Uh, at least Keith has. So um, it's a big and loss. Part, those are the people that are running the his his network That's when right. he came back, and and they kind of have been carrying on for him, and right. uh, mm-hmm. and and they'll keep on going. They're doing well. They are. Yep. They have a lot of a lot of listeners, and um, but uh, you know, Art, uh, I'm sure he'll be listened to for many years to come. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of clips out there. There's a lot of things on YouTube. A lot of his past shows. I was really excited when he came back on Sirius XM radio for a while. Um, he had kind of a habit of like leaving the air. Yeah. You know, he'd be on for a while. He'd get upset over something that was a contract uh, that was actually about bumper music is the reason he left Sirius. Hmm. Um, but he retired uh, from the Dark Matter Digital Network, Midnight in the Desert. He retired basically from that and let Heather Wade take over, who was his producer at the time. Mm. And um, so anyway, uh, he'd pop on every now and then. Um, it's kind of he's just one of these figures, sort of an iconic figure that you you kind of think. Or, well, I would say that I kind of was thinking that he'd be around for a long time. You know, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a kind of a sad and kind of a sad day. Yeah, he and you know what? Another interesting aspect of his background is how we got started in the UFO paranormal stuff. And guess mm. who was his major sponsor who helped him? do it sponsor yeah, no. <laughs> yeah we're doing yeah, a lot of games that. today yeah robert gonna... bigelow oh you know i which makes sense because bigelow's out of las vegas george knapp i guess was involved that makes sense too because george knapp has uh been covering ufos in the mainstream media out there with klas for many years george knapp being uh, mm-hmm. a, a legendary in my eyes i'm just such a huge yeah. fan of his but yes, um, so I guess they were all able to help um, arrange, you know, Art Bell getting on the air to do this. And um, and, you know, it became important. Like you said, he was the one of the firsts. Um, Long John Neville. Some of these people are, are were way before, oh, yeah. before my time. There, there are a few earlier that were doing this sort of thing. But he was That's a right. big one that moved us into kind of the contemporary modern um a, you know, huge explosion of what is now, you know, uh, podcasts like yours and mine, like this very podcast, are Dime and Us, and there's a ton of them out there, and uh, a lot mm-hmm. of us inspired and uh, by uh, Art Bell. I remember uh, uh, reading somewhere uh, that he started out as a political uh, podcast. Uh, oh, really? Uh, broadcaster. Mm-hmm. He was doing, you know, pol- all politics, and he got bored with it, and... Mm. I think it was like a spur of the moment he brought someone on that was uh, kind of in the paranormal realm, so to speak. And uh, he they noticed right away that his uh, listenership was growing. Hmm. So um, uh, that was – but I'm pretty sure it was – he was just all politics at one time and, and got bored with it. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, there's kind of a spin out there. There's a lot of coverage by mainstream media um, and – at least um, Motherboard kind of with their with this spin that kind of blaming him for um, on-air conspiracy theorists. Um, in fact, they I think 
this is going a bit far. I understand their argument, but um, he says that he brought the world UFOs, Area 51, and Alex Jones. I think that's a big, a bit of an overstatement. And then they go on to explain Alex Jones wasn't on his show or anything. It's just Alex Jones is also a conspiracy theorist. But Alex Jones is, is, you know, I think what he does is very terrible. It's negative. It's, it's, um, uh, dangerous and yes. um, Pizza Gate is a good example. Yeah, I mean it, it's bad, bad stuff. And I don't think you can blame Art Bell for that. Of course, uh, he did. You know, he was much. He's much more light about the way he brings um, this stuff forward. And I think he made us think. It's no problem to make people think. And you know, we certainly mm-hmm. need to question our government. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I think that a little bit of this spin. And I think just because fresh people are a bit frustrated, especially with the attention of people like alex jones get um they're kind of right i think that's going a little far blaming him for that to be personally but and it's unfortunately that gets into the story of of his passing yeah that is too bad um the very first clip i heard with him was the frantic area 51 caller (laughs) you know which later turned out to be a hoax but that is that is one heck of a uh, that one heck of a hoax. Yeah. That guy was really, really convincing. Yeah. Yeah. Art Bell was neat, though. What a voice. And then the music. Oh, no. And um, I've never got to meet him or talk with him or anything. Uh, I would love to have. But he's he's a pretty um, seclusive person. I mean, he um, yeah. kind of keeps to himself out there in the desert. That's right. Yep. And so, uh, there was a... They're supposedly, you know, conspiratorial, uh, you know, someone was after him. You know, that's one of the reasons he wanted to retire. He wanted to. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, people get threats all the time. Yeah. Um, so, but uh, it, not to say that that's a good thing or that, that it shouldn't be taken seriously or that it's not scary. But mm-hmm. uh, so I wonder if, you know, people were really after him. And if so, that's, that's really sad. But um uh, because, yeah, especially for someone like him. But, um, yeah, it's uh, unfortunately he's passed. It's definitely a big deal for this community. A legend has passed. And, you know, mm-hmm. whenever we would write stories like about him coming on air or going back off air, um, you know, those would get a lot of hits. People really cared about him and what he did. And, you know, as far as him going on and off air, I, I salute him as far as doing what he feels is best for him and his family and his his mm-hmm. life because yeah you can't let you know these big guys kind of control your life um you got to live your life still and and i think he had that's where his mind was that he's got to take care of his family and live his life and that's that became what was more important to him than doing this radio stuff yeah i totally get that yeah i and, agree and agree yeah all right and other news you got any other news i got a couple things uh no go far away so one of these is Tom Reed. So that poor guy, we, I, I think you've had him on your show, but uh, he feels that when he was a child, he had this sighting. Oh, yes. um, mm-hmm. And the uh, in town where he had his sighting, uh, this was in 1969. And it wasn't just a sighting. It was this large craft they saw in the forest. Many people saw the sighting. And the sighting itself was referenced in like Blue Book and in, and by... Um, uh, Heineck, not 
what happened to him afterwards. But uh, he says that, you know, him and his family went out to, to see this thing and they had this experience of, of an abduction experience, he says. So uh, he did some pretty actually groundbreaking work in getting some attention around his case. Uh, it was in Massachusetts. Um, and he got he got this people to donate and got this memorial put in and near right. where yeah. this happened. Um, they also were able to get like the state, you know, historical society to recognize it uh, as a, an event that happened, which is pretty cool. Um, but he's mm -hmm. had trouble because he put the memorial on, on a spot that I guess was the town's uh, land and people complained. So he had to oh. move it soon after installing it. Well, oh, now yeah. he's moved to, he's in Kentucky and they're making him move it again because I guess the spot they moved it to uh, is private land, but it's uh, there's an easement there for the town. So they're making him move it again. And he said oh. the town administrator who's asking him to move it was the one who chose the spot that it's on now. So surprisingly, Jeez. this story is getting a lot of attention. It's in the New York Post. The AP wrote about it. Um, the last, uh, let's see, where else did I say it? N U.S. News and World Report did a story on it. So I'm not sure why this story is having so much legs in particular. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of a story that you, you'll probably see pop up in your Google News or wherever you read your, your daily news. Well, wasn't that, isn't that monument... Like, uh, like granite or something? Concrete. Concrete. And they're going to have to move something that weighs tons. 5,000 pounds. <laughs> Two and a half tons. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's huge. So, yeah, 5,000 pounds. So that's probably, you know, why you're so upset. If it was didn't weigh so much, it probably would be easy. You could bet. I'm sure they have to get, like, you know, some major piece of equipment to lift it up. And so, yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, you'd think that they would relax a little bit mm -hmm. in, for something like this. Yep. So, oh, Tom wow. Reed, I usually see him every year in Roswell for the Roswell Festival, and I'll be in Roswell uh, this year, too. So, if you come to the Roswell Museum um, during the festival, come say hi. Karen and I will have a table. We'll have some UFO Congress T-shirts and stuff and everything. So, um and Tom Reed will likely be there. He's been there the last couple of years, so we'll see. You know who should go to Roswell and, and chill with us? Who's that? Martin Willis. <laughs> well, uh, that's like the first part of July, right? Is it yeah. July 4th? Yeah. Or, it's usually yeah. the July 4th weekend. Let's see. This year it is um, July 5th to the 9th. Fifth through the ninth. I'm so just after July Fourth as a yeah. possibility. It's a lot of fun. Okay. All right. And I got to tell people if you're planning on going to Roswell, you got to take some time because it's only like an hour away and go visit Carlsbad Caverns. Oh, I would love to do that. That love is that. amazing. It's only yeah, like an hour away into the desert. Absolutely mind-boggling. These humongous caverns and these caves it's it's incredible it's it's a one it's so fun i love to go there because it's a big hike you can take an elevator dan or you can walk it's much more fun to really? walk it's not that bad it's a bunch of stairs but you can take your time and uh absolutely incredible i remember uh as a kid in school like grade school them uh talking about 
the caverns and saying they were discovered because a guy was on horseback and saw, like he thought it was a cloud, ended up being bats coming out of it. Yeah, huge. So is the bat population still in there? Oh, yeah. So every night you you go down, and then every night they do this thing uh, at sunset where you can sit and you, you watch, and a park ranger tells you all about the bats and everything as you wait for them to come out. And then they start to come out. And I think it's for like half an hour, this huge cloud of spiraling bats come out of the cave and you sit there and watch. And, you know, they they say it's okay to talk, just don't take flash photography because that can't spook them. And Mm. you could take a flash photography and then they get spooked and then they go, some of them return to the cave and don't come out and then they don't come out for the night. And of course, then they don't eat. But um, they're really important because... uh, to, to the entire desert. They fly for miles and miles and miles eating bugs, but also dropping guarana, you, you know, guana, their, their droppings, which fertilize the entire desert. So um, they're oh. like really important. But um, we're out of time. We are. I see that. Bum, bum, bum. So thank you so much, Martin, for joining us with the news. Uh, you can check out Martin at Podcast UFO. And right on. Thanks. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this short break uh, with our guest, Michael Schratt. So stay tuned. You're listening to Open Minds UFO Radio. I'm very happy to welcome back to the show, Michael Schratt. How are you, Michael? Hi, Alejandro. Doing good. It's probably been years since I've had you on my podcast, although for a while there, I think I had you on a lot. Mm. We did a show seven years ago, yes. Seven years. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yep. That is a long time ago. But you know what? In those seven years... And I don't know how you've done this, um, and I, I'd like to know the secret. I don't uh-huh. think you've aged a day. No way. <laughs> <laughs> you look, no. Yeah, you look just like you did, I think, the very first time I saw you. No way. That's impossible. Because the first time I saw you face-to-face was probably at a local uh, Phoenix MUFON. Sure, um, sure. But yeah, you are like the ageless, are you part extraterrestrial? Let's just get that out could be you never know ah you're not gonna let us know for sure though (laughs) top secret keep it under wraps (laughs) but it is great yeah i mean seriously and i i I remember maybe the first time we talked or at least one of the first was at a conference maybe a mufon conference just probably 10 years ago or so Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and you're still still going yeah, there's still uh, more fruit on the vine, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to give up. As we, as you know, we're taxpayers, so what I try to point out in my lectures is that the United States government is nothing more than a temporary custodian of those assets. So mm-hmm. technically, we own the aircraft, we own the hangars, we own the facilities, we own the runways, we own... <laughs> Uh, the libraries there, the archives, we even pay the salary of those people. So they're, they're just temporary custodians. We have every right to question authority. Mm-hmm. But this is an interesting aspect, thinking about, you know, back, one of the things I asked you was, 
despite this, despite your criticism mm -hmm. uh, of the way the money is spent, the waste and, and the over secrecy, you, right. if they came to you and said, hey, do you want to work on uh, our next black project? You'd be there in a heartbeat. I would be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But sure. I guess from the inside, you, you could do your best, I guess, to make sure the money's spent correctly, huh? You would think so. But when you start hearing these reports that taxpayers spent $2 million to send uh, two 39-cent washers uh, across the United States, you start raising these red flags. And that's happened over and over again. Really? Yep. Mm -hmm. And these aren't that's, special washers or anything? This is just... No, no. Uh, that's kind of my hobby is to track these uh, fraud, waste, and abuse. And I've got just dozens of examples of this. Mm -hmm. Right. So you need to be in some sort of watchdog agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, some of the stuff that in particular uh, you have touched upon, um, although you do, you've done all kinds of different cases... But are, are the triangle uh, craft that people see. Right. And it seems that you are convinced the government is working or, or has developed um, triangular aircraft. And would I be going to, too far if I said anti-gravity? Uh, I would think that you're, you're certainly heading down the correct road, Alejandro. Um, as I've mentioned before, uh, it's just my personal assessment that 95% of what people are reporting as extraterrestrial flying triangles, if you want to call them, are our own deep black programs. The remaining 5% represent the unknown part of this phenomenon. Uh, I'm not saying by any means that all of them are man-made because, as you know, and as David Marler has pointed out multiple times before, these triangle cases go back to 1896. Mm -hmm. Lockheed Skunk Works wasn't around back then. Uh, Jack Northrup hadn't even begun flying these flying wings back at that time. So uh, to say that they're all man-made... Uh, just wouldn't be consistent with what we know about the historic record. Plus, if you look at uh, Jacques Vallée and his research, and I think he has a lot of good points to, to bring out, uh, he states that UFOs, USOs, unidentified submerged objects, have been seen coming and going out of the oceans. Uh, the phenomenon's been around for thousands of years. They can materialize and dematerialize at will. They've been seen going in and outside the sides of mountains. So I don't think we're looking at a man-made craft in those cases. Mm -hmm. But in the cases where you do think it might be, I think you have yeah. a great argument because the triangle sightings seem to be, and I talk about this over and over again, when we have these people who have had these sightings or, or with Marler or with others, they're different. They're so much more blatant often, although mm -hmm. the minority mm -hmm. percentage-wise of sightings are triangles. The most spectacular sightings are often triangles where they're like hovering right over people's cars. Correct, correct. Uh, we can certainly get into a few of those cases. Uh, we can talk about Colin Saunders' case. He had a fantastic sighting. Go for uh, it. I'd love to hear yeah, about it. Yeah, no problem. If All you have to do is YouTube his name, Colin Saunders, and you can see his fantastic sighting. Uh, great case, great case. Um, and it's, it's basically... 
In a nutshell, uh, 1999, four individuals, this is March 31st, 1999, driving down kind of a uh, deserted road, made a kind of a left turn, and were surprised and shocked to see four red lights at about a 15-degree angle up toward the left. And as they got closer, they could see that what they were looking at were just not four lights, but they were looking at the back of a triangular or diamond-shaped craft. This was the aft end of what they saw. And then not too far after that, according to Colin, this craft made a 90-degree tip-up maneuver like it was, quote, underwater. Very slow maneuver. And on the top side of this craft, he identified these raised box sections. Just incredible. He also mentioned that the upper surface of the craft, the surface of the vehicle, looked like it was moonlight shining on a lake. It had this reflectivity, the shimmering effect like it was alive. We've heard this before as well. Uh, basically, very almost silent type craft. And this has been seen and the modern day sightings of these triangles appear to have started in 1974. And they've been seen all around the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know... With your work in, in what technologies may or may not be out there, what sort of technology might we have in 1999 that could explain that? Well, what I like to do is I try to track the legacy and the pattern recognition of what we're dealing with here. And what I mean by that is if you look at multiple cases, you can start to see this pattern developing. Now, we just talked about uh, the Cullen Saunders case, 1999. I've got a case here from uh, David Marler. This is November 22nd, 1985, Madison, Wisconsin, where we had a state employee who saw a approximately 40-foot wide black triangle go directly over his location. And just going to read you the quote of what he said. Now, this is the bottom surface of the craft. The underside of the craft appeared to resemble, quote, the back of a refrigerator, like a collection of condensation pipes that uh, ran back and forth. After gliding over the witness's vehicle, the craft departed at a tremendous speed and left no sonic boom. So this is 1985. And we keep hearing, Alejandro, the same thing over and over and over again. Not just triangles, but boomerangs as well. So we've got these tubes, pipes, cylinders mm -hmm. on the bottom of these craft. Now, I've just highlighted one case here. This is November 22nd, 1985. The same tubes, pipes, and cylinders were, were seen on the Hudson Valley boomerang, 1982 to 1989. The same tubes, pipes, and cylinders were seen on the bottom of the Belgium Triangle, 1989-1990. We also have a mechanical understructure being seen on the bottom of the January 5, 2000 Southern Illinois Triangle case as well. So that's just four to five cases right there. I've got 12 other cases in my files where witnesses are reporting these strange tubes, pipes, and cylinders. And a lot of these cases are taking place on Thursday nights, Alejandro. Just for example, really? the Phoenix Lights case took place March 13th, 1997, which was a Thursday night. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's very significant because within the black world of defense contractors, which I call Aerospace Alley, starting from San Diego, Southern California, going up PCH, going into Hawthorne where Northrop is, and then sort of like hanging right where... 
uh, Burbank Skunk Works used to be, going up the 14th toward Lancaster, where the L-1011 hangar is, which is now the current Skunk Works location. And then that's also the same location of Air Force Plant 42, where Northrop and Boeing also has uh, facilities. That's where the Rockwell um, Space Shuttle facility was, and then continuing north to Edwards Air Force Base and terminating with scale composites in Mojave, California. So if anyone wants to know what's going on within the black world of aerospace research, just take your ride through Aerospace Alley and you can see the facilities. Interesting. Sean Kelvin, uh, you're probably familiar. You may be familiar with him. He's got a, a Facebook site called Triangle UFOs. Hmm. And he was convinced in his research that, you know, there's no way that these triangles could be human-made until he saw his own. And he was in Las Vegas. Uh, that's where he lives. He was driving, he says, near Area 51, actually. And mm-hmm. this triangle craft was just above his car. You know, you've heard these stories before. He stops his car. He get he looks, and, and this, this triangle craft, it's not too incredibly large. Um, you know, I think he felt it was like 20, 30 feet uh, wide. And uh, it was over the car, and then it, it continued towards Area 51. He said it, it hugged. It followed the contour. It stayed uh, and the same distance to the ground the whole time, and, you know, kind of following the contour up over the, the mountains. Mm-hmm. And he said... Looking at the bottom of this thing, like, for example, the lights, they look like incandescent lights. They look like, you know, there's a filament there. And these were just right. old. He was like, oh, my gosh, this is completely human. And mm-hmm. he, he changed yeah. his mind at that moment. Interesting you mentioned that. Uh, I've got another case from David Marler. This is Woodhead Pass near Barnsley, England, August 25th, 1990, where uh, – A police officer with 30 years of experience was with his wife. They were returning from a Fleetwood Mac music concert. It was around 11.59 p.m. They're driving home, and off to the left, emerging from this dark, misty cloud, comes this 200-foot-per-side black flying triangle. It had one light at the center, and the center part had a relief section, and I believe I've sent you some photos of my cardstock model, Alejandro, so you can, you know, maybe the listeners can follow along somehow. Oh, yeah, I, I'll post yep. those, and yep, I love this one. This one is so cool. I'm glad you're, it, you're going over this. Yeah, I like this case, too, because, I mean, 30-year witness, uh, talking about police officer, 30 years of experience, a reliable witness. He also said that it had a white point on each of the triangle uh, terminating sections, and then... On this relieved section on the inside, it had this cross beam and girder construction. Now, that is the same exact description that we've heard from hundreds, repeat, hundreds of eyewitnesses on the Hudson Valley case where they reported seeing uh, this cross beam and girder construction through these transparent panels where you could look up inside the craft for the Hudson Valley case. That's what this guy's describing. And then he goes on. Not only did David provide me with the text from this case, and I'm looking at it right now, he also provided me with a copy of the original sketch by the original eyewitness. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's one sentence here that I thought was very interesting. He, He said that he saw some what looked like human figures looking back at him. And, and here's what this guy said here. It says, the side of the craft appeared to have several illuminated windows 
and at one of the windows I saw two to three figures that appeared to be human. Certainly nothing about the figures made me think they were anything other than human, reinforcing my belief that the craft was a military project. Yeah, this image is so fun because you have these guys in overalls, you know, in in the image that you've put together on this. Um, Right. And they're just kind of like, you know, we would if if you and I were on this craft just with their hands at their sides looking out the window, Mm -hmm. which, you know, makes me think of uh, if if these are humans, just what it would be like, you know, to these guys, it's everyday work and they're probably enjoying the view or something, but... Here they are standing in this this uh, object that is doing things that you know humans most humans do not realize that is even possible given the laws of physics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the other thing too is. Uh, many times we hear about flashing lights, and like in the Hudson Valley case, we hear about flashing lights, but not haphazard. In sequence, Monique O'Driscoll had a sighting in 1983, and she described how these multicolored flashing lights would flash in sequence up and down the wing of the craft. So you have the reds go off, blues go off, yellows go off, whites go off, uh, up and down the this uh, wing section, but all in sequence, indicating that there was a purpose, almost like it wanted to be seen. It was brazen. It didn't. It was too cool for school. This thing wanted to be seen. <laughs> and and so many of these cases, that seems to be the case that it it appears that the this thing wants to be seen, or at these. That's right. So, mm-hmm. what are your theories behind that? Good question. Um, The only thing I would add to that is we talked a little bit before Thursday night. So many of these cases, Taconic State Parkway, Thursday night, March 13th, 1997, Thursday night. uh, I was told by Tony Gonzalez that the reason why they do this on Thursday nights is because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is pre-flight. Thursday is the test flight. Friday's debrief, Saturday, Sunday, there's generally no one at the facility. So that's why Thursdays are are very keenly uh, something to look into because Thursdays are also when the quote-unquote first-generation Aurora was tested over the entire Los Angeles basin. Booming people on a Thursday morning around 6.29 a.m., the last Thursday of the month for about three years in that time period. So when you put this together, we can start stitching this tapestry of these test flights of these classified vehicles, which are paid for by our tax dollars and have no congressional oversight and no public scrutiny. Now, um, I I may have told you this before, but uh, maybe you have your, do you have an idea as to why that craft was named the Aurora? Uh, I do have an idea, because in Ben Rich's book, Skunk Works, mm-hmm. he indicates that the term Aurora was used as the procurement funding for the B-2 stealth bomber. And it mm. has been erroneously repeated for almost three decades now as the code name for a top-secret hypersonic replacement for the SR-71 Blackbird. It's completely false. That's not the name of it. That's best- interesting. Yeah, no. Every, every, people have gotten this wrong for decades. Well, here's here's the story yeah. I have. Claude Swanson. Do you know? You remember him? I don't. He's know a theoretical re- physicist. I think he's still in Tucson right now. But great guy. He's spoken at the conference a couple times. 
Um, but he says he was working on this project, and it was a cover project. He he knew it. You know, it's a project they were mm-hmm. working on, essentially uh, a propulsion where um, these lasers would hit a like radioactive material, create an explosion, and it would propel. Uh, a craft, or at least in this case, it was for energy, to create energy. It was theoretically possible, but he knew, you know, it wasn't something they could obtain at the time, nor did they have the research or the budget, but the re- the money was going elsewhere. Mm-hmm. This project was in Colorado at, um, um, what is their base there? Uh, it used to be... Um, where Space Command was was out of, and then they moved Cheyenne it. Cheyenne Mountain? Uh, Cheyenne. They've moved it to Cheyenne. Okay. Before that, it was in Aurora at this base that I can't remember what it is. I'll, I'll look it up as we're talking. But that's why they named it the, the project. He felt uh, that it was sort of an extension, and that's where they had came up with the name Aurora. And it was way back when, so I guess it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I know... According to Ben Rich, that term is specifically pertaining to the B-2 funding. Now, when that Mm. project was unveiled November 22nd, 1988, well, now we know that what it was, it was for the B-2 stealth bomber. But this is according to Ben Rich in his own book, so I have to take his word for it. Yeah, he's uh, the authority, so Mm -hmm. it would make sense to listen to him. But that's really interesting. Now, another one of these, and uh, if you, so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share these. They might be on Open Minds already, but I'll, I'll share these images um, mm-hmm. for people to be able to look at. Absolutely. But Absolutely. Another fascinating one is Yorktown, 1985. Maybe you could describe that one, the, Maureen Davis. Okay. Yeah, this is a good case. Now, I have to give credit I have to give credit to Linda Zimmerman. She's the one who interviewed Maureen Davis. So credit has to go to her for vetting this case out. But what I really like to describe uh, in this case, and Linda talks about this from the very beginning, if you can't trust a reference librarian, who can you trust? I mean, this is just a, a very <laughs> a very humble woman, very honest lady. She's a reference librarian. I mean, if you can't trust that, who are you going to trust, right? So that's the first thing we should point out. Now, as the, as the story goes, uh, Maureen was waiting for her husband uh, near a bus stop. Try to recall this as best I can. And out of nowhere comes this black isosceles triangle. It wasn't an acute triangle, but it was an isosceles triangle. And a lot of times we hear about these craft being the size of a football field, okay? We keep hearing this over and over again. Hudson Valley Boomerang, Belgium Triangle, it was the size of a football field. That's not the case here, Alejandro. This particular craft, according to Maureen Davis, was the size of a football field stadium over 800 feet across, black triangle. Uh, It measured about 100 feet thick. It had aft lights. It had a white at each of the corners. And then what's interesting, Alejandro, in this particular case, this is something very unique. Um, Maureen saw an iris open up on the bottom of this craft, a large circular opening, and she got a view on the inside of the craft itself. She described it as terraced apartment complexes stacked together with uh, multiple lights on each of the floors. So if you were taking these, almost looks like uh, pizza boxes stacked 
up on each other with a one inch gap between them, that's what this looked like. And she also said that this red orb came from behind the craft, went up inside the circular opening, it, it uh, closed up, and then this thing departed at a high rate of speed, left no sonic boom. What's interesting about all of these cases is they, they're they describing these incredible um, um, structures. Yes. Huge, immense, but they're all so very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're and right. as you know, with the, the these these humongous budgets that you're talking about, and these huge wastes where the you know you've talked about these where they're even just coming up with a blueprint of a craft without even building it could cost millions and millions of dollars. Sure, sure. That must mean that they're spending and have been spending a lot of money. Well, Jane's Defense Weekly 2006 reported that. Sometime in the in the 1960s. Now they're they're not even sure. Even Jane's Defense Weekly doesn't know exactly when this happened. All they said is in the 1960s, uh, something called the Dawson Report was handed over to Washington D.C. And in the Dawson Report is nothing less than all of Nazi Germany's secret stealth technology that the U.K. and Allies basically mopped up at the close of World War II. Uh, the British government had a tremendous dossier of all the classified research that the Nazis were working on at the end of World War II, and that was handed over to the United States government somewhere in the 1960s, probably after JFK was assassinated. So what's in that, we don't know for sure, but we absolutely know, and this is borne out by the article, that the UK and US government has had a long-standing relationship in stealth technology. In other words, the Brits have their triangles too. Interesting. So we'll talk more about that. We're going to go to break right now. We are talking to Michael Schratt. You're listening to Open Mind GFO Radio. We're going to have a short break. If you're listening to the podcast, you'll hear a music musical interlude but uh if you're listening on kgra you will hear a commercial break and we'll be right back with michael schratt Welcome back to Open Mind GFO Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with the amazing Michael Schratt, and we're having a great conversation here. And before we came to break, you were talking about this report that talked about how the U.S. and the U.K. had retrieved um, 
you know, these, these documents from, or this technology from the Nazis, essentially, and that the UK has their triangles as well. And That's of course, right. they've had their sightings. And I've got a great story from Nick Pope, where he said that, uh, I think it was the Cosford sighting, they contacted the Americans and said, hey, you know, we got these, this triangle flying around. Is this yours? And the Americans responded, no, we've got these triangles flying around. We're going to ask you the same things. Mm-hmm. Although Nick admits, um, you know, his himself and the, his American counterparts may not be aware of other programs going on. Uh, wouldn't be the first time that the United States intelligence community used their policy of lying, denying, and deceiving a program. Give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, Lockheed F-117 Have Blue was a completely black program that eventually turned into what we know today as the stealth fighter. They successfully kept that under wraps hmm. for decades. Uh, the first flight was December 1st, 1977 at Groom Lake Area 51 with Have Blue. Bill Park was the test pilot on that particular flight, and they kept that program under wraps. They successfully did it. So when they want to keep a secret, they can do it, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things, just to move, I know we're moving from topic to topic, but just so much mm-hmm. to talk about, but with these cases that we've talked about, for the most part, um, you built these these models. So first of all, you have right. great imagery where you've you know done like kind of these CG renders that you've put in backgrounds mm-hmm. that are similar. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you've also created kind of these blueprints that demonstrate uh, the craft and and sometimes your ideas about what technologies uh, sure. they they may be using. And then third, you've also now this is a more recently created these models where people can cut out on the paper and you've got instructions on how they can build models of these craft. And, and what was your inspiration to do that? Yeah, good question. Um, I just want to make it real. I want to make it come alive. I want to make it my own. And the only way to do that is to keep everything visual. Everything I do, Alejandro, as you know, is completely visual. It's all image-based. It's all illustration-based. And the way to make these cases come alive is to build a model of them. Mm-hmm. And then you have something you can hold in your hand. You can demonstrate this at a presentation. Uh, that's what Colin Saunders did. He talks about how the craft tipped up 90 degrees. You, you've got to have a model to do that. So I just started tracking these cases. And the ones that I felt would make a good candidate for a cardstock model, I've made the model and I've I provided it free of charge. This is a crusade. Uh, I'm certainly not in this for the money. So if anyone wants blueprints of these, just hit me up and I'll send you the blueprints. You can build it yourself and you can verify with the reference data and the reference material that these are real cases. And in most of these cases, we've paid for them with our own tax dollars. So that's really the inspiration. Mm -hmm. And what we'll do is I'll post the ones that you've given me regarding the cases we've talked about. Mm -hmm. But uh, you have many, many more. So people can talk with you. And you've uh, provided a picture here of some of the other ones that you have. Um, And, you know, hopefully, and I I think we've talked about this a bit, but hopefully uh, this next UFO Congress, you can make it, and then people can come and actually see them and touch them and get the the blueprints as well. Better yet, I'll make you a whole series, and you can put them in your display case. Perfect. That would be <laughs> amazing. That would be awesome. So, one of the models that you have here, um, next to, you've had a table at a conference. I think this was MUFON. 
uh, if I remember correctly. Um, I believe it's the uh, unacknowledged premiere last April. Mm-hmm. That might be where that's oh, from. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. With the black black uh, tablecloth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's from unacknowledged premiere. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got you know your craft spread out here, and of course one of those which I want to make a large model of myself for the Congress and for other events, is the Phoenix Lights event. Yes. Bum, bum, <laughs> bum. So, March... So, yeah. uh-huh. so Go right I want, ahead. Go right ahead. I wanted to ask you your thoughts. This is March 13th, 1997. Large triangular craft, uh, at least earlier in the day, 8, 8 p.m. hour, seen from um, out uh, by Kingman, kind of more Needles, Laughlin area, um, and then seen uh, over Phoenix and down into Tucson. This object, do you believe that this one, because it is triangular shaped as well, it's more of a chevron, a V-shape, uh, do you think that also is, is a, a large black project craft? Uh, good good question, Alejandro. Um, let's, let's break it down here, and we'll talk about the, the time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first sighting took place 7.55 p.m., Henderson, Nevada. Then the next sighting was 8.15, Paulden, Arizona. Then Prescott at 8.17, over Phoenix at 8.30 p.m., ending in Tucson at 8.45 p.m. Uh, we're looking at a distance of 116 miles uh, just for the center part of this particular case. And if you do the time and distance that it traveled, uh it was going 464 miles an hour to do this whole thing. Um, so one thing we can eliminate is flares. Flares were seen similar to the time that this took place, but obviously flares don't describe everything. The other thing I want to point out is it did take place on a Thursday night, March 13th, 1997 was a <laughs> Thursday. Tim Lee was the primary eyewitness. Uh, I interviewed him at his location he said that this thing was so low that he could throw a softball and hit the bottom of it. That's how low this thing was. And a lot of people think uh, that this was a mile across, according to Tim, and National Geographic did laser GPS scanning and measurements. It was 1,500 feet across, plus or minus 10 feet. That's according to National Geographic. So although it was large, it wasn't a mile across. It was about 1,500 feet across. And one thing I want to point out is that multiple eyewitnesses in this case also reported what they term pipes and cylinders on the bottom of the Phoenix Lights craft. Well, I was not aware and, of that. That's interesting. Yep, that, that was reported. And what's interesting, too, is we've got the 2025 report, Air Force 2025 report. And in that report, they discuss how they're going to be using airborne mobile holographic image projection technology to basically fool an unsuspecting opponent, in their words. So this is a technology that they'd like to have. And anytime you hear about something that they'd like to have, it's already been fielded. (laughs) So I'm just saying that one possibility for the Phoenix Lights craft might have been a holographic image projection technology. Mm, that's very interesting. And that's where you can get this 1,500, 2,000-foot-wide craft. 
everybody says, oh, it's just too big to build. Well, it's not built. It's a projected image. A lot of, and even Bill Scott talks about some of the eyewitnesses said that this thing was translucent. You could see through it. Mm-hmm. It had this invisible quality to it, like it was projected. We, we can't rule it out. Now, if this were the case, um, it traveled across uh, the state and at a speed that is not un- known for aircraft, especially military aircraft. Does that mean right. that it would be projected from a craft, you think? or Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. And again, I'm, I'm not making this up. It's not coming directly from me. I want to quote my sources. This is the 2025 report, and this is section 5.6. Listen to what they have to say. It says, the holographic projector displays a three-dimensional visual image in a desired location removed from the display generator. The projector can be used for psychological operations and strategic perception management. It is also useful for optical deception and cloaking, providing a momentary distraction when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. Hmm. Really interesting. And spelled I, out right there. Right. And yep. at the CES conference, which is the tech conference uh, this year, I believe they had something like that. They had a, a holographic thing that was not quite to the degree, but very close to um, um, like what we see in Star Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, if they're doing that for entertainment purposes, who knows, I guess, what the military industrial complex could have developed. Yeah, I like their their terminology here. Psychological operations, strategic perception, and then they're talking about when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. So do they consider all of us an unsophisticated adversary? Uh, I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Um, yeah. they. So in this technology, you could project an image of tanks on a battlefield and it'd be 100% believable. You could project an image of F-15s flying in a squadron or F-16s. You could do a B-2 stealth bomber and look 100% believable. You could deceive an entire battlefield with this technology and they would never know the difference while the actual attacks are taking place hundreds of miles away. Mm -hmm. They have the technology. It's a done deal. That's fascinating. And, you know, one aspect, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, of the reasons why, you know, a psychological warfare for, Mm -hmm. or at least influencing, would serve them in this arena, is to make us believe that there are, or let us believe that there are alien spacecraft visiting here. Um, Like, I think of Area 51, for example, when before the CIA and it was big news that, you know, they admitted Area 51 was real. If I would talk to Area 51 about people, they'd say, oh, that's not real. There's no alien base. And I would say, well, it's not alien. I mean, it's it's top secret aircraft is what they're doing. Eh." But they were skeptical because of this attachment to aliens and UFOs. And so a lot of people didn't believe it existed. And then when it comes out, they're like, oh, wow, it's real. And of course, I've been telling you that for years. So, for instance, with Area 51, it worked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this comes from Bill Scott, so I, I'm not making this up either, but he talked about how, as you know, the, the U-2 spy plane, 
1955 was developed for the CIA, and the the A-12, which became the SR-71, was originally a CIA project. So it's not just the Air Force that's involved in this. We have other intelligence agencies also involving, and so these projects are getting cross-bred and overlapping. You could have something operated by the CIA that the U.S. Air Force doesn't have any knowledge of. It could be an NRO program, National mm. Reconnaissance Office. It could be an NSA program. And when you mix all these together, if there's a sighting of something, they absolutely will use the extraterrestrial card to cover their own deep black programs. And as Bill Scott said, they've been doing this for 50 years. Why would they stop now? And who's Bill Scott? Bill Scott is the former Rocky Mountain editor of AVH Week Space Technology. He spent... Uh, at least 20 years tracking down these black programs, an entire career of being on the inside and interviewing people who have an inside knowledge of this. Engineers, test pilots, people who've worked on the black world, people who've worked on the A-12, people who worked on Black Star program. Uh, he talked about how some of these programs are nothing more than scapegoats where they charge time to another program, but they build it on something else. That goes on. But basically he said that we're, we're dealing with a 400-piece puzzle, but we only have 200 of the pieces. So it's our job to piece this together. But what they're doing is, the intelligence agencies, they're throwing mud into the works. They're throwing a wrench into the works, and they're making it difficult for all of us to piece this thing together. So they'll, they'll, by no means will they have any problem trying to use the ET card to hide their own black programs. They're going to do it. And so when you hear about something, the very next day, you see on the supermarket checkout tabloids, UFO sighting, alien involved. And the intelligence agencies are promoting this mm -hmm. Which as makes a way to hide sense. their own projects. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, of course, I talk a lot about the Doty situation, the Doty case. Uh, uh, you know, Doty worked for Air Force uh, Office of Special Investigations at mm -hmm. Kirtland Air Force Base, who says that's what he did. You know, he invented all of these these stories to make this guy, you know, across the street, uh, an engineer, believe that these things were UFOs and aliens to cover up what they were really doing there. Um, yeah. that's the only kind of blatant admission we have from anyone. And he mm -hmm. really, at least, uh, as far as anyone can tell, didn't get in trouble for what he mm -hmm. was doing. Um, which, you know, it's hard to say he, he's lied about many, 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 many things, but so it's hard to say for sure, just take his word for it. But that lends credence to perhaps he, he really what did do all of this at the behests of his, uh, mm -hmm. of his superiors. Well, let me give you another example, Alejandro. As you know, January 5th, 2000 was an, a watershed event. This was a world-famous, made news all around the world. This is when at least three separate police officers and a miniature golf course owner by the name of Melvin Knoll, who is uh, coming home from one of his truck driving jobs, he saw... <laughs> what looked like a single-story ranch with a penthouse on top fly directly over his miniature golf course. But then what's interesting is we have three separate triangle sightings associated with this particular event. One police officer, Craig Stevens, extremely reliable. Now, this is from the Collinsville Journal, uh, January 6th, 2000, uh, back in 2000. So I'm quoting my sources here. 
And what he said is, uh, I took his drawing. I think you have a copy of the drawing. I do. I'm looking at it. Yep. It's a really cool He describes one. this craft in great detail. Uh, kind of an arrowhead, triangular-shaped craft with a strobing light that strobe from left to right in the back. And uh, he, let me just read you really quickly what this newspaper article says. It says, officer says he is 98% sure object was experimental or military. Then he goes on, as this craft flew over his location by his squad car, officer Stevens stated that the craft tried to, quote, camouflage itself against the night sky, end quote, and was, quote, projecting the star field above it on the underside, Alejandro. Hmm. This is exactly what you would expect if you're using electrochromic panels, where you can blend in with the background, essentially causing yourself to become invisible. That's a man-made technology that was talked about in uh, the, the mid-1990s in popular science. It's already been done. It's already been fielded. Mm-hmm. Well, I just got back from NAB, and of course, uh, National Association of Broadcasters, where it's all AV kind of equipment. And every year, the big deal is, you know, the bigger, lighter, skinnier screens. Yeah. And they're so huge now, and they're yeah. so thin and light. They're, they're, I think they've right. even talked about a, a new TV coming out where it's like a, a piece of plastic. Mm-hmm. So you put this piece of plastic and you p- can project whatever you want. Exactly, exactly. They they have made the breakthrough. They can put any image on the bottom if they want to. It could be daylight. It could be clouds. It could be trees. <laughs> it could be anything, and it would completely blend in. That's what this officer is stating. He he said he's 98%. I believe he's correct. He's he's nailed it. He's mm-hmm. got it. Uh, yep, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, getting back to another point that you were making is that a lot of people don't realize stealth technology. Uh, Area 51 was created by Lockheed for the CIA. And um, although stealth technology, we know it and and talk about it, uh, and we see stealth fighters, and we think of the military and the Air Force with stealth, it was actually, you know, NRO, CIA projects. So is that what you think these are? These are, you know, device or essentially craft where they can observe unnoticed. Okay, let's talk about some real quick uh, origins in history. The modern day portion of stealth actually started in October 1973 with the Israeli air campaign, also known as the Yom Kippur War, where a number of American allied F-4 Phantoms were shot down and uh, the U.S. government provided the Israeli Air Force with the F-4 Phantoms and a number of these aircraft were shot down. So the Pentagon, the DOD, they try to figure out what can we do to improve our odds? What can we do to solve this situation? Our pilots are getting shot down. Israeli pilots were losing planes. What can we do? So in 1974, DARPA and the U.S. Air Force came together to put together something called Project Harvey, and that was to design, develop, and test fly a low observable stealth aircraft. There were five aerospace aerospace contractors involved. Eventually, that was boiled down to two, including Northrop and Lockheed. Lockheed won the contract with their Hav Blue with Bill Park at the controls December 1st, 1977 at Groom Lake. Ben Rich was there on the test flight and also Kelly Johnson, who was retained as a consultant after uh, he retired in 1975. Northrop lost the contract and their 
project was called the XST Experimental Survivable Testbed. And Alejandro, that one image I showed you with the cardstock model, that is the Northrop XST. That was the losing competitor to Lockheed's Have Blue. Mm. From there, it developed into the F-117A Stealth Fighter. And I really think that this is the jumping off point of a, a lot of these black programs, including the triangles, the boomerangs, similar to when the Reagan buildup started in 1981. So 81 to 89, we had this huge exponential growth in black programs. Uh, this is exactly when the Hudson Valley uh, growth took place as well. So side by side, it's a, it's a complete comparison. You can see the exponential growth of funding in the black world happened exactly when Reagan took office. These programs just started getting funding left and right. And even Aviation Week said eight years of the Reagan administration were very good to the black world. Very interesting. We are out of time. It makes a, a, it, it makes a lot of sense, too. So... It's just absolutely fascinating. I always have such a fun time talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. So where can people go to uh, converse with you or see more? You can find me on Facebook or you can email me at A-U-R-O-R-A-C-A-D as in dog the number 5 at AOL.com. So it's AuroraCAD5AOL.com. If you want to copy the blueprints, hit me up with an email, and I'll send you the blueprints. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think it's a great service you do by providing those, by the way. No problem. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Thank you so much to Michael for being on the show. Amazing stuff. He's always so much fun to have on the show. So knowledgeable. And, you know, you can tell accuracy and sourcing is so important to him, which is always important when you're reporting or researching. In journalism, it's important to show that you're just not pulling this stuff right out of your you-know-what, like so many do, unfortunately. He's a great researcher. He's a lot of fun, and, and I'm so happy to have him back on the show. Amazing to hear that it was seven years since we talked. That's crazy. Anyway, uh, lots of cool stuff going on. You can check out the UFO Congress. We posted some really cool stuff. So, for instance, uh, we've got some new products at the store. Also on the YouTube page, we posted the EBE Award Ceremony. So you can see that. Um, congratulations to the winners there. And, and you can see who those winners are. They're really cool. And you get to see their talk. Also, we've got Michael Carter up. I've had him a couple times on the show. Just a wonderful person. Uh, you can find those at the video portal. So remember the UFO Congress video portal where you can watch hundreds of videos for just a few bucks a month. Really cool stuff. So check all that out. You could go to ufocongress.com. Of course, everything that we talked about at the beginning of the show, all of that news, you can find out at openminds.tv. You can find the lovable Martin Willis at Podcast UFO. And I also want to thank Caleb Hanks for the opening and the closed music. I want to thank Systematics for the bumper music. And of course... As always, I want to thank you, the lovable listeners, for joining us here today. Until next time, adios muchachos.